God dag, god dag. Det er veldig hyggelig å snakke med noen i Danmark. <laughs> ja, det er veldig fint. Og tusen tak for at du tager dig tid og taler med os. Ja, it's an honor, as they say. Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med Toril Møj, som er født i Norge og som er norsk, men som i dag er professor i litteraturvidenskab ved Duke University i North Carolina. Møj fik et stort gennembrud med bogen Sexual Textual Politics fra 1985, som var en kritisk gennemgang af samtidens feministiske teorier, og som gjorde hende kendt som en væsentlig feministisk tænker. I 1993 udgav hun en helt fantastisk bog, som er den store biografi om den franske forfatter og feminist Simone de Beauvoir, der hedder The Making of an Intellectual Woman. Det, som jeg skal tale med Møg om, er både hele hendes værk, men især en bog, som hun udgav i 2017, som hedder Revolution of the Ordinary. Grundtanken i bogen er, at en revolution har fundet sted i vores filosofi og vores tænkning, men vi ikke har taget konsekvensen af den revolution, fordi vi ikke rigtig har ville forstået den. Det er kort forklaret. En revolution, der starter med filosofen Wittgensteins bog Filosofisk Undersøgelse, der udkom i 1953 efter hans død, hvor Wittgenstein han siger, at alle de store spørgsmål, alle de store filosofiske anlægner, alle de store tanker, dem skal man tænke forfra, og man skal stille dem på ny. Filosofen er ikke en, der står uden for samfundet og udbreder sig med de helt store teorier om, hvordan det hele hænger sammen. Filosofen er en, der er faret vild. Filosofen er en, der ikke kan finde vej, og som prøver at finde frem til, hvad er det for et problem, vi vil løse. Filosofen tager ikke udgangspunkt i teori over for virkelighed, men tager udgangspunkt i det, Wittgenstein kalder for sprogspil, som er sprog og liv, der er indlejret i hinanden. Hvis man tager udgangspunkt i Wittgenstein, som Toril Møg gør, så afviser man de meget generelle teorier, og man afviser troen på teoriernes enorme forklarings- og forandringskraft i sig selv. Men man finder et andet sted hvorfra man kan tænke nogle tanker og hjælpe med at løse nogle problemer, der ifølge mig faktisk er langt mere revolutionære og langt mere samfundsforandrende, hvis man altså forstår dem rigtigt og tager det alvorligt, at revolutionen har fundet sted. But I really, really, really like Revolution of the Ordinary, and I think it's such a wonderful book. So I thought that would just be the perfect point to talk about, and that's okay with you as well. Oh, that's fine, and it will open out to various other themes as we go on, I think. <laughs> yes. Well, it, we always start with a personal question, but also because when we look at American universities from Denmark, I think we have the impressions that they're intense cultural battlefields. There's a lot going on. And I, of course, I know that we focus on the most spectacular universities, But still, I'm curious what it's like for you as a Scandinavian Norwegian to to be teaching research in an American university. Well, of course, I've been here for almost 30 years, so uh, it's been a while. I would say that, you know, all the headlines about woke political correctness and 
cancel culture and so on, they are, they do arise from the right. They are right-wing propaganda a lot. So I want to say two things about that, because people somehow think that every time I walk into my classroom, I'm walking on eggshells or something. I am not. <laughs> I, I would say that there are some absolutely appalling cases that you do read about in the paper. And I'm sure that there are also specific, particularly activist groups that may be overdoing this. But for example, at Duke, which is where I teach, I don't remember having any issues with this. Now, you have to be you have to assume that people aren't out to, should we say, upset and insult. I mean, if you don't know that you should never use the N-word, I feel sorry for you because, I mean, that's like polite just to, why would you use that word? I'm just ever. Um, so, but, but I mean, I do assign sometimes text which may contain words that are no longer in use, but we just discussed that. I mean, I, the short answer is, I think that although there may be some such issues about culture wars and so on, in ordinary life at a university like Duke, I, I, I just haven't encountered it. So I think it's probably way overblown, but it's also becoming overblown in, an, in a way that makes it politically important. It's being used by the right wing to sort of get the left. And therefore, it then becomes more real than it actually is as a problem. <laughs> I've always wondered about the American universities. I never studied there. I lived in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania one year when I was young, but I never studied in, in America. I went to universities to, to go for a lecture or two. And on the one hand, I always thought that some of the American universities, they had some of the European magic about them, that, that, that there's kind of a, 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 almost a majesty about the university in America that you don't find at least not in Scandinavia, at least not in Denmark at all, where they're just like another public public office. So, so I feel there's kind of a, an atmosphere around them. On the other hand, I'm also curious what it means to the academic field and thinking in America that very often they're like their own worlds in themselves, that you have this campus uh, cultures. I don't know a lot about Duke. I know the basketball team. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I know Jason Tatum, who came from Duke and now a great NBA player. But what what has this campus culture and the way the American universities are a world in themselves? What has that meant to thinking in academic life in America? Well, first of all, I think college, as they call it in America, is a kind of rite of passage for the middle classes and up, which means that the whole concept is not so much for us who teach as for the students they're 18 when they get here and the whole idea is that they are living away from home for the first time public universities in big cities don't have campuses but that is also therefore immediately marking them as should we say poorer and more for the uh 
people who can't afford the enormous tuition fees and so on. But the whole, this culture, this was something I never understood until I'd lived here for 10 years. This culture is sort of so much based on the first time the parents wave goodbye to their children. And it, it really is a kind of... Um, well, rite de passage, it, it's the rite of passage, and it is therefore crucial that college offers a place to live for the students. And um, it, of course, creates a sense that students who get here are not yet fully formed human beings, whereas in Scandinavia, we send, at least I remember, I was probably 18, went to the University of Bergen. It didn't occur to me that I wasn't a grown-up who could do what I wanted. But here it's more like they're training them to become citizens when they leave at 22 or 21, 22. It's a, it's a very different culture, but it has an effect on the students, on the undergrads. But I, I mean, obviously, I don't live on campus. I just work all the time, so I don't meet the human beings either. But that's a different matter. So it's not something that that creates, you know, many great intellectual cultures. They've been created because of intensity that you have people who are, uh, of course, you know, the famous apartment with uh, Hegel and Hölderlin and Schlegel is maybe the most... But, you know, many great intellectual cultures have been created because you have made isolated worlds where you can really cultivate thinking. So I've had, had these romantic ideas about American colleges and universities where you where you can really concentrate on things. And it's very dramatic in people's lives. Well, I think that's true, but you have to sort of distinguish between the undergraduates and then the graduate students. And of course, the graduate students usually don't live on campus. They live in as cheap an apartment they can find off campus. But it is true that American universities to this day are more intense than in Scandinavia. That has some good sides and some bad sides. The bad side is that they always schedule stuff in in the evening and there are lectures and seminar. And if you say you need to pick up your children in the kindergarten or the nursery, well, sorry, that doesn't change anything. It's not as, should we say, when I spent a couple of years working in Bergen, I was just astonished. Then I came from Oxford, but I was astonished that this was a university where people turned up in their office at nine or whenever and went home at four. What kind of university is that? It wasn't what I saw in Oxford, and it really isn't what's going on here either. The idea that you can count your working hours, or as a professor, that I should report on how many hours I spend on X or Y is totally alien. It gives me a great deal of freedom, which I love, but it also means that if you have caring responsibilities and so on, you'd better figure it out privately. <laughs> to turn to your book, uh, Revolution of the Ordinary, that I really appreciate, there's an interesting reflection in the beginning, which I find quite striking, where you, you write about finding your choice of style. And there's a quote here that I really like, faced with the daunting difficulty of my material, I had a hard time finding my own voice. Uh, and I thought that was so interesting because you hear 
you know, fiction writers talking about that all the time. And a lot of our young journalists, they think they should find a unique voice as, as well. But but rarely from, from academics in, in that sense. Can you tell us about this process of finding your voice here? Well, of course, it's at once expresses something I'm deeply interested in, namely <laughs> academic writing, which is so often, particularly academic writing in the fields of literary and critical theory, which is often completely unreadable. It's written as if it's written by robots. And you think, who expects me to plow through this? And uh, so I teach a advanced graduate course called Writing is Thinking, where I'm trying to make them notice what they actually say in their sentences. That's because, you know, people churn out words. I have graduate students who tell me that other graduate students criticize their drafts because they they are too simple, like they are. <laughs> academic enough and I think there's a fetishization of academic writing as somehow better if you can't work out the sentence usually it's just bad syntax unclear use of concepts and that is not thinking so I'm very interested in writing actually that's why the book ends as it does by turning to writers who are trying to use words with a sense of responsibility to reality. But then there's the other thing, which is, I think that the work of an intellectual to find your own voice is to find who you are, what you want to say in the in the ongoing intellectual conversation. It's not to pretend you're not a human being For example, I've had people say, well, when I do literary criticism, I try to be objective and neutral. Well, of course, we want to try to be convincing, but as in literary criticism, you read as the person you are. It's actually unobjective to pretend that you can read as if you were just anyone. <laughs> so you have to acknowledge that you read as the person you are, and that is often a choice of voice. It was also very important for me to write a book that could be as accessible as possible, given what I know about the, you know, I've been giving papers and so on around Wittgenstein and Derrida and other things for years and years. And very often, to start with in particular, I was met with total blank incomprehension because people, you know, it's very interesting. This, I see my book as part of a struggle to introduce something new in literary criticism and in the question of what theory is. And insofar as you're doing that, you could, you could say with Kuhn that you're trying to introduce a different paradigm. I'm not, uh, obviously paradigms coexist in the humanities and so on, but that means that a lot of people simply won't get what you're saying, however hard you're trying. And, but my, My goal was not to fall for the, you know, usual horrible academic writing and produce something that people who have goodwill, people who wish to understand it could follow, given that picking up on Wittgenstein and then showing that it really makes a difference in what literary critics, literary theorists do, it's really difficult. So I... 
I had a very hard time. And I think you, to give an example, um, I, for the longest time, didn't know how to structure the book because to find your voice isn't just finding the right sentences. My advice to all writers is read your sentences aloud. And if you stumble, rewrite. That means you can't actually say the thing and it's not your voice. <laughs> so, uh, and it never fails. I mean, you read a convoluted sentence and there will be a moment where you have to read the word twice or you lose the rhythm and rewrite. It will be much better. But uh, the, where I had trouble was how to shape the book. Where should I begin? Mm -hmm. And for the longest time, I actually began with the chapters that are now on structuralism, like Saussure and what Paul Deman and all those things. And I realized that that just didn't work because the idea there was you begin with the present paradigm and then you show what's wrong with it, right? And then you can build up the new one. But that didn't work at all because I got caught by the kind of overly theoretical questions that weren't actually my concern. And I could only get the book going. I had written many bits of it, but I could only really get it going when I realized, well, I have to begin by doing what I do in my teaching. And that is to set out some of the fundamental ideas and philosophical investigations right up front. And once I did that, I found a voice I could, like I could imagine saying this. I could imagine, well, taking responsibility for this language. So it also had something to do with this specific book, uh, the voice in this specific book, which both wants to introduce the readers to, to a revolution of, of our thinking in ordinary language philosophy, but also wants to criticize this overly theoretical and, and, and academically written philosophy without being contaminated by, say, Derrida or Saussure. Well, exactly. You have to try to... <laughs> You have to try. I'm not saying we always succeed, but you have to try to practice what you preach, as it were. If I had written this book in a, should we say, much more abstract, sort of Zizek Butler type style, it would actually undermine itself. Yeah, exactly. The, the premise of the book is that there was a revolution in philosophy. And a lot of readers and the public didn't really notice, uh, or, or maybe they noticed, but they didn't take the full consequence of this re revolution. What's the short version of that revolution? Well, I think the very short version is, oh God, you, this is hard. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the very short version is that what Wittgenstein does in philosophical investigation is to challenge two things. First, our notion of what philosophy is. And in my book, I use the term theory and philosophy pretty interchangeably, because in my field, literary theory, it's used like that. But it's a, <laughs> it's a very, you know, 
we call Sartre a philosopher, we call Hannah Arendt a political philosopher, but then suddenly we call Zizek a theorist. I mean, these things are very vague, you know, but in any case, two things. Wittgenstein really challenges the notion of what the task of philosophy is, what the point of thinking philosophically is supposed to be. And it, that's a really profound transformation. And secondly, he also gives us a completely different vision of language that is, for me, um, foundational, partly because Wittgenstein's vision of language, which has often been totally, uh, what can I say, um, parodied as, oh, Wittgenstein says that meaning is use. That means that anything that people say is use and therefore must be true. I've actually read those arguments, which of course is nonsense. But um, the idea that ordinary language this produces and is produced by our forms of life, our individual ways with language. We, we learn them as we grow up. They shape the world for us. And the ordinary is what gives us the possibility of meaning at all. So this is a deeply anti-formalist view of language in that you can, of course, discuss form, but you can't discuss form without asking about use. And that means that similar sentences or similar uses, similar sentences or similar words and so on can have widely different uses and therefore can't be analyzed in the same way. So for me, there's a lot of um, contemporary theory that still just thinks the ordinary is a space where ordinary people live, but academics can't learn anything from it. I mean, this comes obviously from my background in Norway and so on, which I grew up in a family where there were no academics. And I am absolutely convinced that <clears throat> it's not true that academics are somehow more sophisticated, more intelligent than so-called ordinary people. We just have more education in certain fields, which is very different. But there's also in this Wittgensteinian understanding of philosophy, one reason I think why it, people did not take the consequence of it is that it takes away the traditional public role of the philosopher. It's almost like, you know, mm -hmm. the loss of the glory in the poem by Baudelaire, that that if if you if you follow Wittgenstein, then you're no longer the big explain everything public philosopher, Sartre character. Isn't that right? Well, I think that's true. If if you have the traditional French intellectual or the idea of the maître pensée, you know, the master thinker who steps out and tells you what truth is in general and so on. I still think that a thoughtful philosopher inspired by Wittgenstein can tell us a lot of things about specific questions. And you see, for Wittgenstein also, so there's a difference between what the task of philosophy is, which is essentially 
getting clear on what we mean when we talk about things that confuse us. And we do, we are confused a lot more than we think, <laughs> but you can't actually begin philosophy if after Wittgenstein, unless you yourself are willing to acknowledge that there's something that confuses you. You know, he has that famous line, philosophy has the form, uh, what does he say? To do philosophy takes the form of feeling that you have lost your way. I can't find my way about. And you know, so much philosophy begins in the other end. I'm the master, I'm not lost, mm -hmm. I'll teach you. So that Wittgenstein invites conversation, response, and acknowledgement of the fact that we are actually fallible human beings, but we can get clearer. And I can show you what I see on a specific issues. Um, and then you can tell me if you see it too. And that's a philosophical conversation. But the idea that the philosophy is what grounds all other disciplines, which is very typical for the French tradition, also the German, la reine de discipline and all that. <laughs> it is just not my view. <laughs> How did you, you've written about very complex French theory and philosophy uh, and, and been through a lot of, of what you're criticizing now. How, how did you yourself experience this revolution? Well, this was ages ago. It's actually probably, oh, it's got, getting to be 30 years ago. I had spent, you know, much of, I worked on French theory. I wrote sexual textual politics, but then I also edited the Christopher Reader and so on. But then I wrote a book on Simone de Beauvoir, who was always the person I wanted to write on. And she's of course not a structuralist or anything. She had, when I worked on Beauvoir, been dismissed by the upcoming post-structuralist generation as an old humanist dinosaur whom we should not read. So I thought that was a great topic for me. I mean, because it's so obvious. It's The reason I wrote on Beauvoir and then a big book on Henrik Ibsen is essentially very similar. Beauvoir had been dismissed as a di humanist dinosaur. That is like to just undermine the complete radicality of her proposals about her analysis of women's oppression. No one had done anything like it in 19, by 1949. And her, for example, development of the concept of the other from being just philosophical to also being political. I mean, Fanon copy, copies it. Everyone after her has picked up on that, whether they know it or not. But that's so I wrote that book to say, hey, we need to care about that. Then I wrote about Henrik Ibsen because I got so fed up with people saying, oh, he's a realist. And realism is just a reproduction of reality. And therefore he must be conservative. I actually read reviews of a doll's house that managed to say that. So they are formalist arguments, right? Since it's realism, it's got to be conservative. And in a way, what I do is showing the use. If people like feminists and socialists in the late 19th century venerated Ibsen. He changed society and we're going to say, oh, it's realism. So then we can't read it. Oh, come on. So um, I, I have a tendency to pick up on topics that I care about because I think there's something really 
puzzling about the way we talk about them. So in the mid 90s, I finished the Beauvoir book, uh, came out in 93. And then uh, a year or two later, I got a fellowship at the National Humanities Center here in, in North Carolina. And I spent a year there. And by chance, the, the center wanted us to have reading groups. And by chance, I ended up in a reading group where there were two professors of philosophy, um, George Wilson and Richard Moran, uh, who were deeply trained in Wittgenstein. Richard Moran also was uh, became a colleague of Cavell's and so on. And our reading group was on the everyday. So obviously we read De Sartor. I had already worked a lot on Bourdieu and so on. But the thing was, then we started reading Wittgenstein and that was it for me because that's when I started working on what is a woman. And I had gotten so fed up with the usual post-structuralist moves, the idea that you could tell before you opened an article what moves <laughs> they were going to make that some two concepts were going to be declared binary opposites and deconstructed and the text would always end up in an aporia or a paradox that <laughs> wasn't always that paradoxical in my my I mean there's it, it, just no way we could do that and in feminism the idea was that and this is important the idea was that we couldn't use the word woman back then because it would be like an essentialist or biologistic mode of thinking. Just saying woman in itself was exclusionary. Um, and that, of course, reveals something that Wittgenstein can show you, that you are picturing concepts as totally bounded, as they have no fuzzy edges, there's no overlap and unclarity. So you picture your concept woman as totally closed. Then the task of the theorist becomes to give it a definition such that all people who call themselves women fall under it. That <laughs> is the very notion of theory and philosophy that uh, Wittgenstein challenges. So that suddenly I saw, aha, uh, here, there is really the roots here of a profound critique of identity politics in the sense of insofar as each new identity is pictured as a bounded concept in that traditional way. Um, so that the question then becomes, instead of discussing politics, you end up discussing metaphysics, namely, what is a woman? How are we going to define this or any other group, right? And that is, to my mind, a completely hopeless way to go about it, because what we require is not settling the metaphysical question. <laughs> we need political and personal action. I would call that an attempt at acknowledgement, which would be part of a conversation in which most people who discuss these things want to be acknowledged. They don't necessarily need to settle a philosophically abstract debate. You also write in the book something that I thought of a lot when I read it, that the feminist theory needs a revolution. And the reason why I thought of that is that my mother she was born in 1944. She grew up in the countryside and she was supposed to be a farmer's wife. But then her mother said when she was 20 that 
this whole way of life is going down. You have to start studying. So she started studying. And, you know, no one ever had more than seven years of schooling in her in her family. And she came to Aarhus and she started studying in the university and she became a teacher. And what was very helpful for her was that there was a feminism at her disposal. There were concepts that she could understand, even without any academic qualifications. And I often thought today that in today's theoretical environment, if many of those very, very complex theories uh, about liberation and about identity, would they be available for her who really needed them? She needed those concepts at the time. She needed to engage with, with the activist groups and women groups, and she did that all through my childhood. They, they, they were there. So, so I, was, I was thinking of her when you said that, this, that feminist theory needs a revolution. Well, I think that that's a, a fine intuition you have there because my mother came from an island on the west coast of Norway and she never had more than seven years of education. My father came from a valley in the south of Norway. He had to take high school at a gymnasium it, in the evenings and worked full time in a shipyard to get his education there. Then he worked in dangerous road work, I mean, tunneling, which you had to back then in the 40s use dynamite. It was actually dangerous, but he earned enough money to be able to go to a two-year technical college, whereas his dream had been to go to technical university, but that wasn't possible. And But he had a, a, a very good career given his possibilities. And I suppose I care about the ordinary and I care about feminism. For me, feminism, feminist theory, um, should help to make women's experiences intelligible. That is, that's what the consciousness racing groups back in the 70s were doing. Women were talking together and trying to find out what these experiences meant. That And that's how they came up with ideas of power and oppression and so on. And they were helped by Simone de Beauvoir's pioneering work. But... Um, the idea that you have to have an advanced degree to sort out the correct notions of, well, for example, I write about intersectionality. As you correctly saw in your questions, I am totally in favor of the idea that some people are oppressed intersectionally, if that means that people can be oppressed for various reasons at the same time. Well, of course, but what has happened in feminist theory was the effort then is to come up with a concept of intersectionality that builds in all possible kinds of power oppressions for all possible kinds of identities, which of course, that's still this idea of a concept that has firm boundaries and that has to now cover all cases. If you give up that view and think that your task is to study specific examples and see what they can tell you, you can surely build a kind of grammar of kinds of oppressions, but you're not going to come up with a concept that holds it all. And that's what I think is Wittgenstein's revolution. And it doesn't mean you can't then go out in 
in the world and speak about oppressions. You just can't do it in the conviction that you've understood everything, but you have understood the region you've investigated, and that's valuable. Where do you see it today? What what are the dominant theories today that you think are overly theoretical? Let me say, this will probably come back to bite me, but they, they almost all are. Pick up any of these books. You see, the thing is, I think it's because I have thought this for 20 years, so I'm probably wrong in that why hasn't <laughs> anything happened? But the thing is, sometimes in the mid-90s, a lot of people got fed up with the high post-structuralism. But what happened was that they took the underlying theoretical commitments with them into somewhat new fields, like affect theory or media theory, digital media theory, or then you got new materialism and all these, what they have in common is that they are hardly simpler and more accessible. Now, I'm not, I'm absolutely in favor of theoretical and intellectual work. Otherwise I wouldn't write Revolution of the Ordinary, right? But I do think that there is sometimes just a lack of will to sit down and ask yourself, what exactly is this piece of writing intervening in? What am I trying to do? That's actually a very difficult question. For Wittgenstein, this sense that you begin with confusion and then over after a lot of work, you may get clear on what your problem is. That is finding the problem is is philosophical work. Whereas I see too much writing where it's just taken for granted that we need to theorize this thing. But what's the point of theorizing it? If Well, what A, what does it mean to theorize it? Usually it means finding a concept that defines it once and for all, and we're back to the same problem, because that will be give rise to the accusations of in exclusionary concepts and so on, but they can't get out of that because they work with those concepts. Secondly, what advantage is there to theorize something that hasn't, that so far hasn't been? It may be super useful, but you have to try to look around and see why, what work can this specific theoretical attempt do? And I often feel that it's just taken for granted that theory and philosophy just becomes an industry like any other industry. Oh, no one's theorized, I don't know, buses in Denmark, so now I can do it. But, you know, have they been missing a theory? You know what I mean? That's the questions. Like, ask the, the question of use. What are we to do with this work? That's important. There's a very, I, I didn't know, I, I did read Irish Murdoch, but I didn't know of the phrase, the just and, and loving gaze. And I think she's a very interesting figure here as well, because she had a lot at stake into existentially herself and was invested in that as a philosopher and, and as a writer. And, and, and you pick up on that phrase, the just and loving gaze. And first you say, you're afraid that this was just sentimental stuff. But what is it that you appreciate about it? Well, it comes as part of an idea of what it, you could say the end of my, it comes at the end of the book, and you could say it's an effort to discuss 
moral philosophy or ethics, or if you like the kind of politics slash ethics that can come out of this kind of work, because Murdoch's key concept is attention. And what she is arguing against is she, she comes up with these ideas soon after World War II, and she had begun her philosophical work by actually writing a book on Sartre. And so existentialism was, in fact, her the movement she was moving away from, but not just existentialism, a certain kind of logical positivistic philosophy as well. And so the idea before her, she thought, was, okay, if you're going to discuss uh, morality or ethics, you have to discuss action, and that means discussing choice. And choice, she points out, and of course she herself is inspired by another woman philosopher, namely Simone Weil, but choice is then becomes the be all and end all of moral philosophy, leads to these examples of the trolley problem, very abstract ideas of what would you do if a tr railway trolley comes hurtling down the railway and if you flip a switch you could kill only one person but if you don't it will kill five and all these things actually um Murdoch says ethical and moral responsibilities aren't just about action think of all the times we because that gives rise to the idea that to do the right thing, you should put up a list with pros and cons, and then you tally it rationally and see, oh, yes, I must do that. Now, we all know that as a matter of fact, we may do that. And then we go out in the world and do the exact opposite. You know, you, for example, may have a great job offer somewhere, just take that. And you realize, yes, I should go and take that job. And then you don't. Because that's not all there is to moral action and reflection. And what Murdoch is after is the idea of attention, of paying attention to how it is with the other and reflect on that. So that the just and loving gaze is for her an attempt. So I thought to start with, it was sentimental nonsense. Loving, come on, you, you, I can't go around being loving to everyone. And just, <laughs> can we ever be just since no one is neutral and so on? You know, all those arguments. But the fact is that the more I read, the more it grew on me that this is our attempt to look at others Justly. So you will admit you're not going to be biased. You have to try to undo your biases if you're going to see the other or a situation correctly. It doesn't mean you'll succeed, but you can, if you don't even try, what's going to happen then? Secondly, loving. That means to me, that you look at the other with their best interests in mind. That is, you try to do that. Again, it's an effort. And if you do that, you might actually, for, for Murdoch, get a better grasp on reality to see what's really going on. And if you don't see that, how can you ever get to the right action? So that's what I liked about it. That I, I like about when I read, I have just one last question for you, which is in, in your book, there's always this 
a conflict between the very theoretical and the ordinary, which is a conflict in, in the world of ideas, you could say, but it's, it also mirrors a social conflict, meaning that if you, if you have a contempt for common sense, it very often translates into also contempt for ordinary people, or you, or you, so, so there's this same coupling with, with the intellectual world and, and the, and what we call the ordinary world or the non academic world, which I have a lot of sympathy for. And then you end, uh, end the book, near the end of the book, you, you write about a democratic vision of writing, which I really, which I really, really liked. And I think that would be a good way to end this is what is this democratic vision of writing? Well, first of all, this contempt for the ordinary. Now, that often comes through uh, in the idea that common sense is always reactionary. It's always ideological. My view is, as well, this is the view you will have if you read a lot of it, late Wittgenstein, is simply this. Sometimes common sense is, in fact, reactionary, but sometimes it is not. And it behoves you as an intellectual to try to make out the difference. So because otherwise you get this in my book, I quote uh, Marcuse, who really is totally, you know, he is celebrated as a great hero of radical thinking, the Frankfurt School and all that. But he looks down on people like J.L. Austin and Wittgenstein for using for just using ordinary language, saying you like do and not z, for example, or say, or just talking about the ordinary man in the street, not it's always man, let's note that. But the thing is, um, if you want to get to a true sense of democratic speech, you can't begin by dismissing what a lot of people might naturally think. They may be wrong, but they sometimes are right. So our task is to get maybe get into a conversation and get clearer on what might work and not work. But the other thing about a, when I write about the democratic vision of language, I go to literature, some really good writers, to say something like this, because in our time what has happened is that language has is frequently used it began with some politicians it's now routine in social media and many news programs and so on simply language is used without any connection to reality hmm. what it, the words are floating free and that means that anything goes. How are you going to ground a democratic politics if you can't trust a single word anyone says? That leads to cynicism and disengagement for most people. And, you know, so that what we, what ordinary language philosophy can do is help to slowly build up the sense that there are ways of using words attentively. Words are expression and action, but they're also response. And we are responsible for what we say. So that if you just have no sense, and you see the reason I'm saying this is that in the past in theories, when language was cast as pure representation, it means that you have the words here and reality there and theorists have a 
enormously difficult time connecting them. That Wittgenstein offers a completely different view, which is that words are used, they arise, the meaning of words arise in what we do with them. That means that words aren't some words and sometimes expressions we use to name things, call that representation, if you like. But language isn't representation. Language is action and interaction and expression and description and all these things. And that's how words have meaning, that we've learned them from childhood. We have to debate them sometimes, but it's not a matter of language floating free of reality. So in a way, Wittgenstein says, his task is to remind us of what we already know. And in a way, that's how can you get a democratic politics if you're not committed to the idea that words have meaning and you should try to get it right. To use the right words in the right situation means telling it how it is, calling it how you see it. And you can't do that without attention, the just and loving gaze, an effort to acknowledge the ordinary and so on. That's where I end up. That is almost also the task of the intellectual to have this curiosity. You know, there's something ignorant about just saying that common sense is stupid. Yeah, I mean, if you have that as your general view, which, you know, any number of theorists from Althusser to Butler and Zizek, and any, the whole sort of way too much of the left Marxist tradition has bought into this, Marcuse, the Frankfurt School. And, you know, the Frankfurt School has always had a problem with popular culture and popular genres and the ordinary. So there's that. And I think that we don't need to buy into that to be radicals. We can still appreciate a lot of other elements of these theories, but not that. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you. Well, thank you for having me. Det var min samtale med Toril Møj, og den bog, vi talte mest om, det var Revolution of the Ordinary fra 2017. Og det er, som jeg håber, det er fremgået af samtalen, faktisk en relativt let bog, selvom den tager fat i de helt store spørgsmål. I næste uge, der skal jeg tale med forfatteren og journalisten Rana Faruha, som er klomist på New York Times, og som skrev en formidabel bog i 2022, der hedder Homecoming, som er et opgør med 40 års økonomisk politik, 40 års handelspolitik, hvor hun redegør for det, som hun kalder for det største paradigmeskift i økonomien i 75 år. Hvad det kommer til at gå ud på, det skal man lytte med i næste uge for at finde ud af. Jeg vil bare sige, at jeg havde set mange af punkterne før, men jeg havde ikke set det samlede billede, før jeg læste Ranas bog, og før hun uddybede dem i vores samtale. Den her samtale var som alle andre langsomme samtaler, klippet og produceret af vores gode ven, Anne Pilegaard Petersen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg håber, vi høres ved igen i næste uge.